A hearty welcome to all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God. I invite you to turn in God's word to the Gospel of John chapter 5, verses 19 through 30. John chapter 5, verses 19 through 30. Uh, And this is one of those texts where I can tell you in advance, I'm not going to say nearly enough. There's so much more that could have been said, perhaps should have been said, than will in fact be said. Uh, So should you have any further questions and want to discuss it at greater length, you can get at me after the service and nothing would please me more than to discuss it at greater length. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderfully theologically rich passage in the Gospel of John. John 5, 19 through 30. Let's hear God's word together. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him, uh, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all the judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so also, uh, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you loved us before the foundation of the world. We thank you that you have not destined us for wrath, but for life through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that in grace and mercy, you have chosen us to be your people. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came down into this world, even though you are the eternal son of God, You enter this world uh, taking on the form of a servant, becoming a human being to save us from our sins, to reconcile us to the Father. Thank you that you freely gave your life and bore the wrath of God for our sins and rose again that we might be reconciled to God. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have made us responsive caused us to see our sin and need for a savior and thank you that you've enabled us to respond to the gospel and trust in Jesus our savior. We ask Holy Spirit that you would continue your good work in us. We ask that you would continue to sanctify us and increasingly conform us to the image of Jesus Christ our savior. 
And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be pleased this morning to make us receptive to the truth of God's word, causing us to believe it and live in light of it. Amen. So as human beings, when we are lonely, uh, we inevitably seek out other people. Uh, we have to go outside of ourselves to obtain relationship and love. We can't obtain those things, obviously, on our own. But unlike us, uh, God does not need to go outside of himself to find love and relationship. He is in himself a community, a community of persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And for all eternity, the Father has been delighting in the Son and the Holy Spirit and pouring out his love on the other persons of the Godhead. Uh, at the very heart of reality, there is this mutual giving and receiving of love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, and we need to recognize that each person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, possesses all the divine perfections. Each person is truly God. The Son is not less God than the Father. Each person uh, is divine. Nevertheless, we also confess that there are personal distinctions within the larger unity of God. The Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, and so on. And these persons, these three persons, uh, relate to each other in distinctive ways. They are not interchangeable. So for instance, we never see in Scripture the Son sending the Father into the world or the Son giving to the Father a certain task that the Father does. It's always the reverse. It's the Father who sends the Son. It's the Father who gives the Son uh, a mission to accomplish. And this passage that we are looking at this morning gives us a glimpse into the very being of God, into the relations between the Father and the Son. And it is a profound passage, and as I said earlier, more could be said. But as we look at this passage, we will consider three things, three interlocking statements about the Son's relationship to the Father and the Son's work. Number one, the Son only does what the Father shows him to do. The Son only does what the Father shows him to do. Number two, the Father seeks the honor of the Son in all that he gives him to do. And third, the Son gives life. Well, before we look at Jesus' words, we have to remember the context. Uh, we were told uh, the previous section last week, as we saw, uh, that Jesus came to Jerusalem to celebrate a feast, which was going on among the Jews. And when he was there, he healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. When he healed the man, he said, take up your bed and go. Now, the day uh, on which Jesus said to the man to take up his bed was the Sabbath. And when Jewish leaders saw this man carrying his bed, they said, that is a Sabbath violation. That is work on God's sacred day. And so they approached the man and challenged him, and the man points to Jesus as the one who instructed him to do that. So that brings Jesus into conflict with these Jewish leaders. Now, intriguingly, as we noted last week, Jesus could have defended what he said by appealing to the law and saying, hey, you guys have misinterpreted the command of God. It's not as restrictive as you're making it. But he doesn't do that. Jesus' argument is, look, the Father is working today, and whatever it is that the, allows the Father to work today allows me to work today. 
He was claiming equality with God, claiming even to be God. And the Jews recognized in verse 18 that he was making himself equal with God. This is a really direct and bold statement of divinity. The Son has the same authority as the Father. But lest we understand and think that the Son works independently of the Father, Jesus goes on to clarify that the Son's work is dependent on the Father. So we shouldn't think of the Father doing his own thing and the Son is doing his own thing and they're acting independently and in isolation from one another. Yes, the Son possesses the same authority as the Father, but he uses that authority in exact harmony with the Father's will. There is an exact correspondence between the work of the Father and the work of the Son. And that's what he says in verse 19. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. The Son can't do anything of his own initiative. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. Everything Jesus does perfectly reflects what the Father is showing the Son to do. He does nothing more or nothing less than what the Father reveals to the Son to do. There is an exact correspondence again between what the Father shows the Son and what the Son does. It's a bit like if you look at yourself in the mirror and if you start waving your hand, you will notice that there's an exact correspondence between the image of your hand and your hand. When your hand goes up, the image goes up. When your hand goes down, the image goes down. And in the same way, Jesus is the mirror image of the Father. He perfectly reveals the Father. But then notice how carefully balanced these statements are in verse 19. On the one hand, the Son only does what the Father shows him. But on the other hand, the Son does everything the Father does. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. There again, you see uh, Jesus' claim to be God. Everything that the God does, he does. Now, this verse is very significant because in affirming that the Son only does what the Father gives him to do, uh, we see that when we look at the Son, and when we see Jesus acting and speaking, we are also, at the very same time, seeing the character of the Father. We shouldn't look at the Gospels and say, oh, you know, this act in Jesus' ministry reveals that he's loving, for instance. Uh, but I wonder what God the Father is like. I see that the Son is loving, but what is God the Father like? No, 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 Jesus would say. What you see me doing reflects God perfectly. So when we see the Son, we also see the Father. When we see the Son uh, drawing little children to himself and placing his hand upon their heads to bless them, we see, of course, the Son's love for these children and desire to bless them, but we also see the heart of the Father in that same act. When we see the Son reaching out his hand and healing broken bodies ravaged by the effects of living in a fallen world, we see not just the power and desire of the Son to reverse the consequences of sin, but we see also the power and desire of the Father to do the same. When we see the Son reaching out to lost people, seeking the lost, like that Samaritan woman that we read about in chapter 4, and drawing them to himself, we also see the Father's heart to bring people to himself. It's precisely because there is this exact harmony between the will of the Father and the actions of the Son that Jesus can say, as he does in John 14, 9, 
Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know what God the Father is like? Look at God the Son. Look at his words. Look at his actions. And there you see the heart of the Father on display. I think this helps us to, cor to correct a common misunderstanding or distortion of the gospel. Sometimes people have the idea that God the Father stands against us in judgment, but God the Son loves us, and he came into the world uh, to win the Father over, to cause him to love us. Well, we need to recognize that that is a gross distortion, a massive distortion of the biblical picture. God the Father loves us as much as God the Son. John 3.16, God the Father sends the Son precisely because he loves sinners. And every time Jesus does something that causes us to say, the Son loves us, we should also say, the Father loves us. The Son perfectly reveals the Father. The Son doesn't love us any more than the Father loves us. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, identically and perfectly, love us, and we see that as we look at the person and work of Jesus. So, first thing we notice is that the Son only does what the Father gives him to do. Second thing we notice in this passage, though, is that the Father gives certain works to the Son so that the Son would be honored and receive the same worship and faith and obedience that he receives. Look at verse 22 and 23. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Uh, this is fascinating. We understand that the Father sent the Son into the world because he wanted to save sinners, because he loves sinners. Amen, that's true. But what's intriguing about this passage is it says, God, the Father, also sent the Son into the world to do the works that he does, not simply for our sake, but so that the Son would be exalted and worshipped and adored. First, verse 20 says the Father loves the Son, and he gives him these works to do so that the whole world would give to the Son the same honor that they give to the Father. It is the Father's desire to lift up and exalt Jesus Christ, his Son, and cause him to be honored in precisely the same way that he is. And he does this, John tells us, by the works that he gives to Jesus. And these works include uh, raising the dead to life, just as the Father speaks and the dead are raised. The Son speaks and the dead are raised. And also the Father has entrusted judgment to the Son. Of course, as verse 30 uh, tells us, that the Son always judges in perfect harmony with the will of the Father. Incidentally, we should understand these two works, this giving of life, and judgment as essentially one work, different aspects of one work. But the Father has given these things to the Son so the world would trust him as their Savior and honor him as the very Son of God. Those who do not honor the Son can't honor the Father. Consider that. If you're not honoring Jesus as the eternal Son of God and the Savior of sinners... It doesn't matter what nice things you say about God the Father, you are not honoring him. We honor the Father only when we also the, uh, honor the Son whom he sent into the world. This means that every religion or every alternative spirituality that denies Jesus as God and man, that denies Jesus as Savior, is a spiritual dead end that can't save you 
and won't reconcile you to God. So contemporary Judaism, for example, which rejects Jesus as the Messiah, is failing to honor God. Islam, with its failure to recognize that Jesus is indeed the eternal Son of God, divine like the Father, fails to honor God. All systems of thought, all spiritualities, all religions that don't bow the knee to Jesus fail to bow the knee to the Father. And we recognize that this isn't popular to say. In our world, the sophisticated position is that all religions are teaching basically the same thing, and we should all just affirm that fact and agree you know, to, to affirm one another's faith. That's the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying if the Son isn't honored, the Father isn't honored, and there is no eternal life, there is no salvation from sin, there is no spiritual blessing where the Son is not honored. We need to understand love and love for others, not as the world defines love, but as Scripture defines love. The world thinks of love as being broad-minded, tolerant, affirming that we are all you know, taking different paths to the same destination. But love, according to Scripture, means warning people that if they are not submitting to the Son, they don't have life. They are still under the judgment of God, and they desperately need a Savior. It's, it's, not, it's not loving to allow somebody who is running to a cliff uh, to let them continue on their way because you don't want to be bigoted. The loving thing is to warn them you're on your way to destruction. Jesus is the only Savior. So remarkably, where the Son is not honored, neither is the Father. Jesus goes on in verses 24 through 30 to describe his work of giving life. We saw that that's one of the works that the Father has given to the Son. And then verses 24 through 29 describe that work of giving life in more detail. The first thing we notice is that Jesus gives life even in the present. Jesus gives eternal life even right now. Look at verse 24. Uh, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. In the context of verse 24, eternal life is the opposite of being condemned. Eternal life means being accepted by God, being declared innocent in God's courtroom. The person who has eternal life is not viewed by God as a guilty sinner, but as Uh, one of his children who has been washed of his sins. That's the meaning of eternal life in this context. And the implication is, if you don't have Jesus, then you are headed towards judgment. There is coming a day when the Son of God will scrutinize every life. Everything that every single one of us has ever done, every thought we've ever thought, every word we've ever said, every action we've ever committed, The Son will scrutinize everything. And all those who are not trusting in Him as their Savior will be declared to be guilty and sinful in the sight of God. No one will be declared innocent on their own. And the reason for this is our lives have been characterized not by a consistent and unconditional submission to the Father. Our lives have instead been characterized by a consistent rebellion against God a consistent pursuit of our agenda and our will rather than his. 
All those who don't have Jesus are moving towards that day of condemnation. That day when Jesus says, uh, away from my presence. The judgment consists in being cast out of the life-giving presence of God and being punished eternally. That's the trajectory of every single human being apart from Christ. That's why we need a Savior. Whatever other questions we ask and answer in life, we should ask and answer this one. How can I be delivered from the judgment of God? That's the fundamental question every single human being needs to be asking. And Jesus tells us how. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Jesus doesn't say, well, try to be a better person. Make sure you pray more. Make sure you're more generous to the poor. Jesus says, hear my words. Trust in them. Trust in me. And you are pardoned of a lifetime of rebellion and disobedience. And this is because the work of Jesus is perfect and doesn't need us to add anything to it. As the Son of God, he perfectly does everything that we need to be reconciled to God. He bore God's judgment at the cross perfectly and triumphed over it and rose again. And so we need to add nothing to his saving work. We simply need to believe it. And in believing, we are not condemned, but brought from death to life. We are accepted by God himself. What this passage is saying to those of you who are here this morning who may not be trusting in Jesus is believe. You are headed towards eternal destruction and eternal separation from God. Your state, whether you recognize it or not, is perilous. You are in danger. And Jesus is warning you. And he's saying, you don't need to die in your sins. You don't need to be judged. I paid the price. Believe in me and experience eternal life. Believe and live is his invitation to all of us this morning. But to those who have placed their faith in Jesus, the right response to this is to rejoice and be happy. Whatever else is true about you this morning, you have eternal life. You have eternal life right now in the present. Look at verse 25. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So there's a future component here. The hour is coming. That's a future orientation. There's a time coming when the Son of God will speak and the dead will rise. Future. But already in the present, look at now here, the time is now here, those who believe in Jesus and accept his testimony and his word have eternal life even now. Have eternal life in the sense that they are pardoned and reconciled to God. Whatever else might be true of you, if you are trusting in Jesus today, right now, the verdict has been rendered. You don't have to wait till you get to heaven to see what the outcome is going to be. You can know right now that you are accepted before God through his son, Jesus Christ. And the response should be joy and gratitude. Whatever troubles you face in this life, you don't face that trouble, the ultimate trouble. You have peace with God And that regardless of your circumstances, you have a reason to rejoice today and give thanks. You have a reason to be happy even if you're not happy. Or maybe I could put it this way. You are happy even if you're not happy. Put it as paradoxically as possible. Paul says something like this in Romans 4, 7 through 8. He's quoting a psalm. Blessed, happy are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So from God's perspective, who has it good? 
Who has it made? Who is blessed? It's not the rich people, educated people, sophisticated people. It's those people whose sins are covered by Jesus Christ. And if that's you, you this morning, God views you not as unhappy as you perhaps view yourself, miserable, worn down by life. God views you as blessed, and you should view yourself in the same light. This helps to put our troubles in perspective. Having had the ultimate danger uh, resolved, having had the ultimate question answered by Jesus, uh, there are things that are going to break our heart in this life, but we should see those pains in light of what Christ has done. It's like that old hymn says, you know, uh, whatever my lot, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, what? It is well with my soul. No matter what's happening in life, you can, you can declare this, I have peace with God and nothing can separate me from him. Is that the refrain of your life? Are you living in that joy? Whatever else, whatever difficulties are happening, I have a great savior in Jesus. God is my father and I don't care what happens. Uh, I have him and I have peace with him. Is that characterizing your life? Is the work of Jesus bigger than the challenges you're facing? So Jesus gives life, gives eternal life in the present. Already, even now, we get a taste of what's to come. But he goes on and tells us there's also eternal life in the future. Our resurrection is coming. Verse 26 says that the Son has life in himself just like the Father. By the way, we don't have life in ourselves. We get life from others, right? Our life is derivative, but not the life of God and not the life of the Son. He possesses life in himself. And so he has the power to give that life to whom he will. He has the power to resurrect. But also the authority. Look at verse 28. I'm sorry, verse 27. He has given him authority, authority to the Son, to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Son of Man is a, re is a reference to Daniel chapter 7 where there's this uh, mysterious figure, the Son of Man, who is given authority by God to rule over the nations. And Jesus is identifying himself with that figure from Daniel 7. He is the Son of Man, and he has authority as well as power to raise the dead. Jesus tells us that's exactly what he's going to do one day. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. All of the accumulated corpses over millennia will in one moment when the Son of God speaks come to life. So powerful is his word that at that word in a moment all the dead will come to life. Those who have done evil, who have not trusted in him as their savior will rise to judgment. But those who have trusted in him will experience the resurrection of life. On that day when the Son of God summons us back to life, uh, we're going to be raised with bodies that will never grow old or die or get sick again. Perfect bodies in the very presence of God in the context of a renewed creation. How, think about the best moments you've ever had in this life, the sweetest moments, sunset hikes in Sedona with your friends and family, whatever it is for you. Those moments pale in comparison to what Jesus has in store for us at the resurrection, when he will bring us to life in the, in the context of a renewed creation. 
For us, for God's children, death is not the end. It's the beginning. On the other side of death, we confess that there is life, that there is a resurrection, and there is joy. And what that means is that the sorrows of this life, however acute they may be in the present, are temporary. They are passing. One day, and one day soon, they will be no more. And recognizing, not only, as I said earlier, that our sins are forgiven, but recognizing that the troubles of this life are passing. And joy is the lasting thing. When we recognize that, we can press on and endure in the midst of life's troubles. Uh, Some of you may know who C.S. Lewis is. Certainly if you've been around CBC for any length of time, you will know who C.S. Lewis is. Uh, English professor of literature, uh, lay theologian, wrote lots of uh, wonderful books and some not so wonderful. Um, In any case, Lewis has this voluminous correspondence where he would answer letters from children and various people who wanted to talk to him about his works. But there was this uh, elderly American woman who would write to Lewis, and she would often complain of the trouble she had. She was lonely. Uh, she was ailing. She was sick. Uh, her children didn't pay any attention to her. And in one of his letters, he just gives her like, some really wonderful advice. Like, he's older at this point, and she's older at this point. And he says, look, most of the race is behind us. The nightmare is nearly over. (laughs) You know, so press on. That's just good, stern stuff. I don't know if it moves you, but I find it tremendously helpful. Uh, The nightmare is nearly over, right? There is less to suffer at this stage of your life. You know, a lot of it is already behind you. Praise God. You don't have to go through some of the things you've already gone through, right? The race is nearly over. It's not going to last forever. A resurrection is coming. So keep going. Don't lose heart. Don't grow weary. Keep going. But of course, even as the words of Christ point us to this resurrection that's coming, these words also show us his authority and his power. He is the one who with one word reaches into death and pulls out his people. He's that powerful and he's that amazing. And what we should recognize is that our lives are in good hands. Your lives are in good hands. Jesus is a faithful king and a powerful king. And if he can raise the dead with one word, he can certainly bring you safely home. So this passage challenges us who might be filled with anxieties and fears about what may come and what uncertainties there are. This passage challenges all of us to be of good courage because we have a powerful king who takes care of his people. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we worship you as the eternal Son of God. We acknowledge that we have life because of your sacrificial love, because of your self-giving for us on the cross. Lord, we love you, and we ask for grace and strength to lead lives that are more and more pleasing to you and the Father, just as you at every stage of your ministry delighted in the will of God and did the will of God, so also make us a people who delight in the will of God and obey it. Amen.